Welcome back to the Physio Foundations podcast, where we talk about the knowledge and skills that provide the foundation of expert clinical practice. So it's my pleasure this week to bring on somebody who's not a physio, but who you're going to be very interested to hear from. And that's Ben Meadley. So Ben is a flight paramedic and he is an academic here with me at Monash University. And I've been lucky enough to be on his supervisory team, so supervisor for his PhD over the last few years. And that's how I met Ben. And if I'm bringing him on here, this is a sure sign that this is going to be an interesting conversation. I always love talking to Ben, always something interesting comes up. And we're also going to find out from Ben what his thoughts are looking at us, looking at the physiotherapy profession as someone with a lot of experience going to physio himself, but also working in a related field. So Ben, welcome to Physio Foundations. Thanks for having me, Luke. Pleasure to be here. So um, let's go through the bite. Rather than me reading a big, long bio of you, because you've got plenty of things you've done, do you want to tell everyone just a little bit about you and your background and what you do? Yeah, sure. Um, so I started and I, I completed an undergraduate in uh, exercise physiology uh, slash human movement. Um, and ironically, had looked to physio as a potential uh, career option during those stages. Uh, I eventually uh, became a paramedic for a range of reasons, mo- mostly those, uh, you know, sense of purpose and vocational interest in the field. Um, and it aligned with a lot of that academic vigor aligned with working outdoors and all of those things. Um, so I've been a paramedic now for about 25 years. Uh, I've always maintained a keen interest in human performance in various forms uh, as I've gone through. Uh, and the, the vast majority of my career has been as an intensive care paramedic. And in Victoria, we call those types of paramedics MICA paramedics mobile intensive care ambulance. Um, I've worked in a couple of ambulance services around Australia, uh, but the, the most amount of that time has been back here in Victoria. And for the last uh, 14 years, I've been as a uh, intensive care flight paramedic with our helicopter rescue service, where we do a mix of um, uh, search and rescue work, uh, complex clinical work, roadside traffic accidents, uh, intensive care transfers from regional facilities of sick people who need to be in major hospitals. Uh, So that's that's my career. And then I've always continued to have an interest in research along the way. And I've I've been fortunate to have a a clinical um, research background as well as some of the uh, more human performance orientated research that made up my PhD. And we'll get into that because that's really relevant to a lot of professionals and that the angle that you took to look at uh, the health of paramedics in your PhD. Um, Kelly, Kellyanne Bowles, Associate Professor Kellyanne Bowles was on the podcast a couple of episodes ago and she described you as one of the most humble people that you ever meet. So you're not exactly going to be blowing your own whistle about all the things you've done, but um, I think she also described you as someone that you'd really like next to you if you have an accident or a, a heart attack or something, uh, something yeah, along those lines as well. So I hope, uh, hope that was the case if, uh, if there was any paramedic. But, all, you know, it's one of those funny lines out of being a paramedic is that you never want to do any work, but if the work's going to happen, you want to be there to, to provide the care. Right. And so 25 years of experience, and then you mentioned an exercise physiology background and there, there was elements of uh, physiological measurement in your PhD. Yep. Yeah, And then it's interesting that you, yeah, I remember we were talking about that originally, you were thinking about being a physiotherapist. You'd have yeah. some, some real insights into as a patient, as um, with your family, and 
um, involved with physios and then working as a researcher alongside yeah, physios, yeah. myself included. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I'll, I'm going to ask you soon about your perspectives on what makes a really good physiotherapist because I think that's yep. an important thing to, for someone from the outside to look yeah. in and reflect on. So, um, but before we go there, let's talk a bit about what you did, what your specialty area and what you did in your PhD. Um, so look, your PhD, as people are about to find out, broadly was related to the health of paramedics. Yeah. And I, I want to ask you why, first, we'll start broadly. Why is it important that all health professionals care about their own health beyond just saying it's important? Yeah, yeah. Why, why is that so important? Yeah, it's a, it's a great line. And, I, and look, although a large percentage of my work was focused on the pointier end of the career, so the specialised staff, where there is a large physical component to the role, um, the work was across all all parts and sector, right from um, graduate paramedics in their first year in, in a similar fashion to a physio, you know, you do your immediate post-graduation phase um, of clinical practice where you where you go on to become a registered healthcare professional with APRA. So um, in that phase, I think, you know, which is one component we looked at that can be the, the most challenging part from a well-being point of view and a health point of view. You're young, you might be living out of home for the first time, uh, you've got a salary um, and you can, if you want to buy a pack of M&Ms, you don't have to stop and think about it, so you can. Um, you also um, largely in both physio and, and a lot of other healthcare professions, including paramedics, have large sedentary periods or stationary periods followed by um, periods of physical activity and sometimes extreme physical activity, certainly with our paramedics uh, performing manual handling tasks, a huge uh, area of interest for your audience mm. um, and the, the potential injuries that go with that, along with um, yeah, things like prolonged CPR, crouching positions, um, confined spaces. There's a lot of things that factor into it. But a lot of it is the lifestyle stuff as well. So um, you, for the first time uh, you work, shift work for a period is, can be really challenging. And that's um, one of those things that is a is a unavoidable reality of paramedics' lives. Um, and the circadian disruption has a range of consequences personally, professionally, um, you know, sleep, uh, your, your metabolism, the food choices you make, your social interactions. There's, there's so many layers to being a well person. Um, and although we weren't able to co cover all of them, as, as any person in academia finds out, you start with a very big idea and you, you hone it down. Um, we thought it was important for, if we think of one thing that's really important, it's the individual. It's uh, secondarily the translation to patient outcomes, which we didn't answer, but the, the, a reasonable hypothesis is that a more well clinician provides better care, um, which is universal to all healthcare. Um, and then I guess we want a sustainable workforce as well. We don't want people leaving because they're, they're unwell and that the job makes them unwell. So we looked at a lot of those things. And then the other end, we've we've got a group of outliers, so the specialised staff who tend to, if we were to say there was a trend to um, some poor health behaviours early in the career, we've got people who've been in the job for decades who show very good 
um, one health literacy, but um, good health profile as well. Mm. So um, there's a lot of components to it, but I think the big ones are longevity and the ability to maintain your own well-being, health and well-being, so you can provide good care. And that's what it, it comes down to because you need to be in the profession for long enough to learn the mm. skills. I mean, one of the themes that's come out of the many conversations I've had on this podcast is that, um, you know, work hard, get yourself to the starting line for your career as a student, but then yeah. acknowledge that it takes time and yeah. you know, it's many, many years of experience to be- yeah. become that professional that can really help people with challenging problems. Very true. Um, let's, let's talk about a, a little case study that everyone can relate to and probably knows about of when we can thinking thinking about what the acceptable baselines of physical fitness and health are. Yeah. And this is our good friend Johnny Utah yeah. from the film <laughs> Point Break. Ben once in a university presentation started off his presentation with some video that he'd screen grabbed of Johnny Utah running along in that scene when he he's chasing Bodie and they go down into the drain and Johnny Utah does his knee. Do you, want to, do you want to tell us that was yeah. funny, but then it was really relevant. It really tied into the story of your PhD. Do you want to tell yeah. everyone why yeah, you sure. showed that video? So you know, I hope, hopefully everyone's had the chance to see the original and the best version of Point Break, <laughs> and uh, which is what Luke's referencing. And in fact, I, I showed it to my kids over the school holidays to make sure that they're culturally appropriated into uh, good <laughs> 90s movies. So, um, and, and in this scene, you know, there's an undercover um FBI agent who ironically has ended up working for the FBI because he suffered a knee injury in his college uh, football career. And that was, so that's a known entity. They know he's got some kind of physical compromise, um, but then he goes out into the field and he's chasing one of the bad guys, our, our friend, uh, Bodie or Patrick Swayze, the actor, dearly departed. And uh, he chases him and he falls off a, a ditch, as you said, into a drain and uh, hurts, re-hurts his pre-existing injury and, and can't chase down the bad guy. And for me, that sums up the concept of physical employment standards should be able to identify a person's capability to do a job. And if if the robust physical employment standards were applied to that individual, Johnny Utah, um, he would have been eliminated from being able to do the job because one of his job-related tasks is to chase bad guys, jump down off fences and ditches um, without injuring yourself or, or without exposing pre-existing injuries. So, um, you know, we were able to – in fact, I, I did a – now that my PhD is uh, finished, I presented it to a, a group of rescue swimmers um, and uh, they all got it straight away. As soon as they were able to see Johnny Utah and uh, Point Break context, they understood the science. So it was quite good. So good. I was trying so hard not to laugh there. <laughs> not at you, but with you. Just I've yeah. never heard a summary. Of, that's the greatest summary of the film Point Break I've ever heard. <laughs> it's really. How can we apply that to other professions? So not every profession needs to jump down ditches and chase bad guys. Yeah, and that's right. So, what if we try to think across laterally and, and think to we'll think with about physiotherapy. There's a physio foundations podcast yeah. for our audience. Um, so, what? And this is this is pretty broad question. We could go anywhere with this, but what do you think people should consider as their sort of acceptable baseline of physical fitness? This is it. Really depends what you're doing, doesn't it? That's right. So one of the parts of the scientific methodology of developing a physical employment standard, or at least something that guides um, the types of 
criteria for your job is a job task analysis. And so I think that physiotherapists as a profession have a really important role in that concept. There's very few people who have that um, functional anatomical understanding. And as as all the, um, the, the, the listeners will completely understand, that advanced anatomical, physiological, and functional component of your physiotherapy education is what gives you that unique understanding of human movement comprised with the fundamental understanding of gross anatomy coupled with the functional part of the anatomy, the um, the kinesiology, if you like, of that, um, and then the understanding of you know lever systems, the more complex biomechanical aspects of human movement, and identifying if somebody is to perform a task, then what are the anatomical and physiological and kinesiological implications of movement within a task? So physiotherapists actually have are, are the SMEs in this area, in my mind, because there's no other health or craft group. Sorry, what that, was SME? Oh, subject matter experts, sorry. Gotcha. Um, so there's no other um, real kind of group that holds all of that that intellectual property, if you like, around these types of areas. So by, by a mechanist, by designer, generally scientists or or high performance sport technicians with with you know strong academic component. Um, exercise physiologists have a different appreciation at the other end of the spectrum. Um, but in the middle, I think physio other people, they're the Swiss army knife of human movement. They've mm-hmm. got every single option. Um, and so for the micro in that question, which is what does a physiotherapist need to do in regards to preparing themselves from a physiological and, and physical performance point of view, where the job task analysis applied to that role is probably standing in one spot for extended period of times in awkward position, uh, twisting, moving, and then performing manual uh, laborious tasks um, whilst in an awkward position. And, and no doubt you spend quite a bit of time making sure you that you optimise that. Um, periods of sitting, completing your, you know, your pre or post analysis from a patient, um, and then having to demonstrate exercises yourself. And that's the big one for me, which I can kind of hark back to my, um, my time as a gym instructor. And, uh, it doesn't become obvious on the camera, but I'm 69 kilos dripping wet. And, uh, you know, I've peaked, uh, at my, uh, my gross weight. Um, after 25 years plus of trying to put, you know, muscle weight on unsuccessfully. So as a uh, gym instructor in the late 90s and early 2000s, I was, I was probably 62, 63, maybe slightly more kilos and, and you know, six foot on the dot. So I've got to go and demonstrate a bench press or a squat or, or whatever. You know, I, I had to make sure I had the capacity to be able to demonstrate those exercises, you know, maybe not with uh, – with you know a couple of twenty kilo plates on the bar, but for me, um, in in that environment, I had to be able to practice what I could preach. And so for physiotherapists, obviously, it's one of those things where you have the absolute necessity to be able to have to demonstrate the task. And, mm-hmm. and I'll, I'll tell you a um, this great physiotherapy memory I have, if you like. I, uh, there was a. a uh, clinic um, Paran Sports Medicine when I was a junior cyclist and I uh, used to go there for just some prehab um, for for leg strength. I had, had, you know, a bit of a, a one-week knee. And so I remember Lynn, I can't, can't remember her surname, but the, the physio there um, 
said yeah, yeah, Lynn Watson. I, it could very well have could been. Be. Yeah. Um, but guessing. she she had said to me, "Your VMO is is inactive and your lateral knee strength is poor." And she stood there in her high heels, put and uh, put put you know one foot behind her her glute, and just stood there with perfect posture on one leg in high heels and goes, if I can do it in my heels, you can do it with flat feet um, as a, as a 16, 17 year old or whatever it was. So, you know, as a, a, to round that out, she could demonstrate the exercise. She had the capacity, she had the preparation, she had the holistic approach to her own health and wellbeing that meant that she could do her job. You know, she could demonstrate a range of exercises. So that's, I guess the micro answer um, from the wider health system point of view and the role of physiotherapists in helping people understand what they do for a job, um, we would love it if organisations and employers had an overarching policy to make sure that they mandated minimum requirements for a job and had completed a scientifically validated uh, job task analysis and physical employment standard. Um, that's often not the case. They are often quite arbitrary, um, but... Uh, in our profession, for example, these manual handling tasks, awkward movements, confined spaces, prolonged sitting with periods of high-intensity physical activity, um, is that's right in the sweet spot of a physiotherapist to be able to identify those tasks, the movement patterns, and provide the patient, um, hopefully proactively, with the way forward to, to making sure that that person's capable of doing their job. Mm. And there's a, so with your profession, there's some non-negotiables and there's lives at stake That's right. as, as well. And then there's a bit of a balance as you go further back along the high performance end to, um, to perhaps where we are with our work, uh, mm. where you, it's an inclusive profession as well. And we don't want to be ableist and that we should be in, including yeah. um, many different types of people and finding ways to, that they can work as well. But, you know, I thought that was a really, really nice answer to a very poorly worded question for me. <laughs> you really dug out um, <laughs> the essence of that somehow. You must know me. Oh, it's like we before. <laughs> <laughs> and great physiotherapy memories. That may, maybe I need to make that a segment on the, the podcast ah, yeah. as well. <laughs> it's got a low threshold for a great physiotherapy memory, but that's <laughs> that, that's that um, example of being able to demonstrate exercises. Mm. I really want to emphasize that for our students and grads, mm. because if you're using exercise as a primary part of your interventions and your strategy, yeah, you need to play the be able to play the part and demonstrate them really well. So and that yeah. takes. You know, that takes you. And Chris Seville, who was on the podcast, physio was on the podcast a few episodes ago, who d really focuses on strength training in his clinic, sure. really made that point as well. You need, do need to yeah. walk the walk. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, look, it's it's one of those things, you know, the, the um, I'm trying to find a, a reasonable example, but, you know, the, the, the faith that you then exert to your patients. It's like if I had somebody who's in a critically unwell situation, the reassurance I'm able to give them is often verbal. Um, you know, you express a degree of professionalism by whatever it might be. So, you know, providing that person with responses to their queries about their current, you know, health status, um, reassuring them that we're there to help them and, and that we're able to provide thing, uh, provide the care that we say we're going to provide, um, performing tasks 
for example, let's say putting an IV in or, or applying some ECG dots or whatever, but doing them confidently and capably, I would liken that in physiotherapy as as just one of the many, many things that physiotherapists do um, is, you know, demonstration of exercise would be something that asserts faith back to the patient that they're being well looked after. Mm. What else do you think are foundational, fundamental, foundational knowledge and skills for a physio? This is from someone who has worked with many physios and has been to physios. And you, so you've mentioned the ability to, to play that part and, and demonstrate exercises, for example. Yep. What else do you see as a really important professional skill or attribute that makes someone, makes you want to trust them and work with them for your rehabilitation yep. as a patient perhaps? Yeah, look, I think one of, one, of the, one of the evolutions of healthcare um, professionals across the board is that emotional intelligence almost and the ability to listen, recognise when listening is the most important part of the conversation, but also rec- um, listen uh, and also have that, that capacity to understand when it's time for you to then say to the patient, well, this is what I'm going to do for you. But also, of course, physiotherapy is the perfect space, a little bit difficult in my area to allow the patient to dictate their their healthcare plan. Mm. Um, whereas, you know, again, another great physio memory of, of very recent times, I, I've got a, you know, ongoing bit of um, sacroiliitis that's, that's just been, you know, a lifelong um, thing that I've just had to manage and it can really flare up, especially flying around in the helicopter in a cramped environment. And um, I, I'm a cyclist by choice, which means I'm, and the physios would all completely understand this, I'm a one-trick pony basically. I can go one direction. I've got no lateral stability. Um, I'm, I'm great in a in a single plane of movement, not too good in multiple planes of movement, um, which is something I've really tried to work on, especially as I get older. Um, and I'd said to my physio locally here, and I live in a very small town, we've got this amazing, you know, it's a disproportionate amount of expertise in this in this small town and these fantastic groups of physios and one guy in particular that I see. And uh, I had said to him, my care plan for me is I'm 46 and I want to feel 35 as long as I can feel 35. That's all I asked of him. And he then designed my uh, clinical Pilates, my home base movements, and then my attendance at clinic based completely around that assertion. Um, because that's that's all I want. And and I'm not stupid enough to think I can feel 21 because that those days are never coming back. Um, but I don't want to feel sorry. Yeah, 35 felt better than 21 for me. But well, yeah. well, probably anyway. Yeah, let's yeah, go so. 35. That's right. But look, I'm I I attribute him taking that request or 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 my contribution to my health plan and him translating that to reality to me feeling probably I, I at 46, I feel as well as I ever have. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of components to that, but uh, I, I go to clinical parties with him every week uh, and I wouldn't miss it. And uh, even though I'm not injured uh, at the moment, um, I know I stay that way largely because of his care and he he really just did listen to what I wanted, and so I you know rambled on about all of all of the things that I've just rambled on about, and he was able to you know take that and uh, and craft the program. And then if I didn't like a movement or an exercise, he was happy to adjust and be flexible. So I think empathy, emotional intelligence, flexibility, um, and 
allowing the patient to have a voice in their own care um, is, is a really great way to look at it. And we, we try and inject a lot of those as paramedics face-to-face. Um, but, you know, that it's not always possible sometimes. It looks um, different, doesn't it, for, a, for when you have time and you're working with someone yeah, and you're that's right. spending 20 minutes figuring out the complex history and the, the yes. goals and everything versus saving a life. And this, this yeah. has to be done, not negotiable. Yeah, we just do it in a compressed format, basically. That's that. See, that's really interesting to hear that. Mm. Yeah, but that's yeah. A, e, even in that time where life is critical, you're still approaching this from a patient advocacy and sort of patient centered yeah. way, yeah. just in a compressed amount of time. Yeah. So if it, and, if you can do yeah. it there, then we can we can do it when we have more time in a physiotherapy yeah. context. It's interesting. I can see it from here, but um, I've got a book of I, we we often get commendations from patients. Um, who, who, you know, go through the usual pathways of, of feeding back to the paramedics. Um, and I've got, a, you know, over 25 years, a, a pretty pretty reasonable book full of these. And not one of them is about a, you know, a procedure that I did or, you know, a, a drug that I gave or, or anything technical per se. It's all about the humanistic stuff. You know, they were made to feel safe. They were made to feel cared for, Um it wasn't necessary. And, and I've got one, interestingly, from a patient who'd moved to a country area. Um, she was an ex-Supreme Court judge and she'd retired to the country literally a couple of weeks later. And the first thing that she did, she thought she needs to clean up her yard. And so she decided to have a bonfire and she threw a bucket of petrol on the bonfire, not knowing any better and suffered some fairly severe burns. None that were life-threatening, but there are enough that we needed to put her to sleep to protect her airway because she'd had some airway burns. Um, and she 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 was fine, had a great outcome, um, but it was in a very, very small country town hospital with no medical staffing, and we had to go in there on the helicopter and and kind of take over this job. When I say take over, work with the team to, to achieve the outcome, um, but we were called for our expertise to, to go and resolve the problem. But her, she was awake and, and alert prior to us giving her the anaesthetic. And um, it was the decisiveness that was the feedback. And so people like that. People, you know, people like um, being listened to, but somebody, you, you, you know, you people go to you and, and physios in particular to solve a problem for them. And so um, that's, that's, your, that's your job and you've got the armamentarium to do it. With, with the education that you get, especially at a place like Monash. There's your emotional intelligence there and experience as well of knowing that there's it's on a continuum that you need a bit of both. So of listening course. to people and letting them guide and being an advocate and, and being a part of their care, patient-centered care and patient advocacy. Mm. And, and then having a plan and saying, this is what I think I can offer yeah. you. Or in your case, when things are more time critical, this is what's happening and um, and more directing and letting them know what's happening. Yeah, that's right. Mm. That's right. And if, and again, if people feel they're um, they're part of of the plan and they they own the plan themselves, well, then they feel empowered to enact it. And you know, compliance with physiotherapy would be one of the banes of your existence, no doubt. You know, it's like, oh, okay, well, we're doing a follow up. Have you been doing what we've requested you to do? No. And Although even that conversation is evolving away from even the words compliance mm. towards 
something that's more team focused, team based. So absolutely, uh, I'm wearing the white coat and I'm telling you what to do, and you're not compliant. I think that it's yep. a language thing as much as anything. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Yep. So one one thing that the listeners who, if you haven't worked with or spoken to a lot of paramedics. Uh, you may not be aware about is just the evolution of this profession from where, you know, where it used to be to where it is now really a professionally driven research uh, focused profession, which um, a lot of that has been driven by Monash Department yeah. of Paramedicine, yourself, Kelly yeah. and Brett and then everyone, lots and lots of people I've had the pleasure of meeting over the years in that um, department next door to mine. And so so it's very interprofessional, isn't it? It's not just a matter of you, you're there on the scene. And so you really work with a range of professionals. Yeah. Not just in your role in, in the exciting stuff of rappelling out of helicopters and things, but just across paramedics. What's your interprofessional um, work? How, how do you interact with other professionals? Yeah, it's great. And what have you learned from that? Yeah, it's funny because, uh, you know, obviously um, very much part of a, a system Um and and no doubt with physio, you know that there is that very same relationship. And I think one of the things that helps break people's barriers down because when, um, especially junior staff, when you start off, you go, "Well, I've just spent all of this time gaining all of this knowledge. I, I'm bursting at the seams with the ability to translate that into practice and reality." Um, and at that part of your career, you feel like, "Well, I've been educated." taught um i've done clinical placement I, now's now's the time as i go out into the workforce to express my expertise um as time goes on of course you realize that you can't be all of the things so you can't you can't do all of the jobs and it's just especially in a, in a complex world in a complex healthcare environment it's just not possible to be a to be the single source of truth. So we have a range of different professionals that we work with, and that that includes the nursing and um, medical staff within the hospital bounds. It includes the the volunteer lifesaver on the beach where we might have gone to a case. It and it and it and includes the volunteer firefighters, uh, SES workers. Um, it includes police officers. Um, it includes mental health teams. Um, there's such a huge range. The the people in uh, forest fire management, park rangers, the the sheer amount of people we interact with uh, on a on a daily basis is quite enormous. Ski patrol, you know, and it, and it's funny. I think one of the things you you work out, especially when you start dealing with volunteers, or uh, and, and this might be particularly pertinent um within sporting clubs or other types of organizations that use the services of physiotherapists is you just never know who you're standing next to okay. and that you should always make an assumption that they're, they're somewhere very close to you within less than that six degrees of separation is probably someone who knows more about what you're doing than than you do, and I'll give you a, a number of examples of uh, the Surf Life Saving Club, uh, not far from here, uh, where we, we'll often respond to cases. Um, and, and the reason I know all of these things now is because my kids are, are part of the club. But the uh, professor who's the head of the Murdoch Children's Research Institute into infectious diseases is a is one of the stalwarts of the club I think there's something like 17 physicians as who are parents of the nippers at the club so you could 
you can, I can, we can go and land our helicopter on that beach and, uh, and walk in, uh, making an assumption that we've got this all under control um, and that I'm here, I'm the only one who can solve the problem. Whereas there's probably, you know, 20 people standing within five meters of me uh, at that particular beach on any given nippers day that can probably do everything that I can do and more. Um, and so I think that um, it, the, the term I use is uh, if you think you're the smartest person in the room, well, then you've self-declared that you're not by thinking oh. that in the first place because I think, uh, you know, we we often interact with the, these uh, volunteers around the place like SES, CFA um, and, and a range of other groups and they're often full of very, very capable people, which is a, it's often a pleasure when you find out these things and you're like, wow, great. That's that's a fan. Rather than saying, "Well, I'm going to protect my turf. I own this. I'm going to do this." You go, "Come on down. Let's all work together to achieve the outcome." And so, I think that um, that working in multidisciplinary teams and recognizing what each uh, person can give has been, I think, a part of my journey that I'm proud of is that uh, you know I get these tiny little feedback loops living in a small town where I'll hear on my Tuesday morning bike ride from the cousin of the SES captain that I did pretty, a pretty good job at that car accident the other day and everyone felt like they were part of the team because I won't run into those SES people until, you know, the next job or whatever, at which point we don't have a chance to talk because we're, you know, right. yeah. up to your arms in doing something. So the, the Bush Telegraph is often where I hear this feedback that things have gone well by just simply respecting everyone else's role but also leveraging everyone else's role in a multidisciplinary team, recognizing who's got the talent to to affect an outcome, um, and uh, uh, working together to allow them to maximize their contribution to any given situation, whether that be in primary healthcare, whether that be in critical care, where where I spend most of my time, or um, or whether it be in academia for that matter, you know, like you know, I think our project speaks to multidisciplinary teams very well. You know, I don't have the the musculoskeletal and um, overarching um, movement based understanding that you do. I could never do that. You know, I've got a history in it, but it's a, it's tiny. Uh, we had Joanne Caldwell, Dr. Joanne Caldwell from physiology. I did an undergraduate exercise physiology degree, but I'm not an expert in it, And but Joe is, so let's go and ask her what she thinks about it. Um, and we really sought out um, a, a great team of collaborators who brought all of their expertise into one place to achieve the outcome. Uh, you can really apply what you're saying here to work as a physiotherapist, and I, I am yeah. trying to link this back to physiotherapy. Yeah, of course. I could go talk to you forever asking you follow-up questions about what it's actually like being on the side of those, you know, in those high-pressure situations, and perhaps we can do another episode and do yeah. just that. But but so, say we're, we're applying this to physiotherapy work, it's always multidisciplinary. That's right. And so what you said before was always assume that there's going to be at least someone in your immediate area that that knows more than you and that you can draw on their expertise. So we can apply that to working in a hospital is quite obvious. People have name badges and you know who they are and defined roles, but even working out in the community and um, having just a, even just the thought of, I don't have to know everything as well. It's That's quite right. comforting for a youngster. For a, yeah. Now let's, let's change that. Youngster. <laughs> a young emerging health professional. That's it. And, or a student 
it's really hard to, to feel confident knowing how little you know. Sometimes you just continue yeah. opening doors and there's more doors behind there and, um, and you're always learning. Yeah. Eventually you need to be, develop some confidence and then you know, get good at something. That's and, and you know yeah. what the um the definition for me of a professional and, and an expert, ironically, is someone who is still willing to ask for somebody else's opinion on a matter. Mm. That's actually true expertise because you can recognize your own limitations. Mm. And so that can be really difficult when you're a junior junior practitioner or a junior healthcare worker. And we see this with our, our junior paramedics, and would be the same for any healthcare profession. Because as I mentioned earlier, there's an, you feel the weight of expectation. You go, I've been trained, I've been accredited, I'm credentialed, so therefore I'm, I, I have to perform. And you don't know sometimes yeah. what what would be the definition of a stupid question and what you're that's supposed right. to know. You don't want people to judge you. So yes, a, a culture right. where we assume the best of each other, which doesn't always happen on social media and um, in, in those circles, but it certainly does happen in all the groups of professionals mm. I'm lucky to be a, a, a member of. And just, right. and just being aware that when you're a younger clinician or a student, that there's a lot of things you don't know and that's okay. That's come up a lot in the conversations I've been having with people. But having yeah. the confidence to say, I'm not sure, even if you're supposed to know it, yeah, even if that's right. not be afraid of judgment. And you can always look things up. There's so That's many- it. And I'm glad you brought that up because we, um, when I started my ambulance career, there was an assumption of um, – wrote learning the clinical practice guidelines right. and when you were um and this is a while ago but you were expected to know them by heart now they, they have evolved i think the the book might have been 100 pages when i was a junior paramedic it's it's in excess of 500 now so it's a very different kettle of fish and so what that has translated for me is so we've got an app with all of our guidelines now and what I've actually done, even though I, I know a lot of my guidelines by rote still from, from just you know repetition over the years, I often make a point of being the most senior clinician and demonstrating, referencing hard copy material or whatever it might be in front of junior staff to normalize it for them to say, it's okay to stop, pause, plan and ask the question um, because I've, I really do feel, yeah, even though that weight of expectation is often some some sometimes implied rather than actual um and and you don't know if you don't know um yeah. then then actually stopping and being safe in in clinical practice is really important as well um and and for us the heat of the moment compressed time frame uh, means there's a bit more urgency to get some of those things done uh, but I had a case very very recently where I looked up a medication dose uh, in front of junior staff, I knew what the dose was, but I did it deliberately. You know, showed the phone to all of us. Does everyone concur that this is the dose? We had the time to do this. They're like, "Yep, no worries." And hopefully, they take away that message that it's okay to to seek help, ask questions, cross cross check. And I, I know that everyone would go, "Well, we'd assume and hope that they do that." But you know, uh, medical error is still overrepresented in the data uh, with regards to poor patient outcomes uh, across healthcare. Mm. Look, pause, plan. So you've heard it from Ben. It is okay to just to pause and look things up. I think just just empowering particularly the younger clinician and the student to say, well, that's a part of what you're doing. It's not only okay, but it's actually what you're supposed to be doing as well. And we're role modeling that. I'm thinking of the teaching. I've just come from teaching a, a really nice class of anatomy 
principles of joints and bones and muscles to the mm. to the fresh first years this year and had a really good session in there and quite a, and I said I don't know two or three times during the session right. yeah. when I actually didn't know and I looked up things with them and and it's that role modeling of yeah. of learning through your lifetime so yeah, yeah so I don't know is is the ironically the mm. phrase of the expert because <laughs> they're accepting their limitations mm. that's such a good spot to end it on because there's so much I don't know. And that's why I'm hosting <laughs> this podcast, talking to people like you, and learning so much. I hope everyone listening to this is enjoying these conversations. And Ben, we'll do it again. Great. So much Thank more. You. We, you know, what we should do is talk about your, a little bit more about your your research on the next one. Yeah, but yeah, we sort absolutely. of touched on it, we touched broadly across things. But if you've got time for that, I know you're a busy man, but any final thoughts, anything else you wanted to add? Oh, look, I mean, it's a, a privilege to be able to speak to this profession. You know, I've personally benefited and professionally benefited from my interactions with physiotherapy as a profession uh, for many years. And um, I wish everyone all the best and hopefully we can um, come back. We'll have another chat uh, when um, when they're a little further along. Um, but also uh, thanks for the opportunity. And I think as all healthcare professionals, you know, the, the evolution of our all of our professions is about um, developing our emotional intelligence, empathy, of course, our our capability with regards to what we do, but then aligning that with you know research and uh, and you know pushing into new frontiers, as we like to say. Mm. And just it all starts with you and your, as you said, your emotional intelligence and that attitude that you take into your work. That's so good, Ben. Um, we're going to leave it there, and people can track you down by googling you, Ben Meadley. Yeah, they'll yeah, find just, your research uh, profile anywhere else that you you don't. Uh, Google Scholar or can. Yeah. Look at your research um, uh, papers. Yeah, um, there is a, a website. So there's benmeadley.com, which is just a, um, a a homepage, a landing page for my uh, research and also just some of the resources I use in presentations. Oh, we can see Johnny Utah in there doing, yeah, his, sounds good. doing yeah. his run. So, look, Ben, really appreciate your time and great to hear from you. So thanks very much for coming on. So for everyone still listening to this, we really appreciate you being a part of this reflective conversation. It's really important, not only just to reflect and take time out to think about these deeper issues, but also um, to spread some positive messages about what we do. And you've heard from someone who's not a physio, who's worked closely with physios across his career, and he's given us a um, fairly positive summary of what we're doing. So, you know, have hope. Um, don't listen to everything that you, um, well, don't take everything personally that you read on social media in particular. And there's, there's some amazing people out there that you can use as mentors and work with. So um, thanks very much for joining us again. So do all the things I always ask you to do, like, share, subscribe, connect with us at Periton Physio or with me, if you like, at Luke Periton on Twitter mainly. And we'll leave it there. So thanks, Ben. Thanks very much, Luke. So until next time, this is Ben and Luke wishing you all the very best with your studying, professional development and lifelong learning. 